So um, let me tell you a little bit about what I was asked to speak about today. One of the concerns that was kind of presented to me was to talk a bit about how you in this community, as a, a fellowship that's seeking to follow God, relate to your other relationships, people who are not a part of this community, people who are in other parts of your extracurricular life, uh, professors, academic, friends from home, all of those things. Um, and I want to say also that um, uh, one of the things that if you're in this community and you're checking it out, maybe you're like Jeremy, you're, you're not uh, sure whether you're for what this group is for, I think some of the things I'll say tonight will have a lot of implications of, of what this means for you uh, as well. And one of my goals tonight, and I hope this doesn't frustrate you, but I'm not going to hit you with a certainty tonight. The end of this kind of few minutes together, you're not going to get the end of this and go, oh, now I know exactly what to do. My goal is not to, to, to present a certainty. In fact, in some ways, I want to be a bit more provocational than that. I want to provoke you. And one of the goals that I have is that this would provoke you to conversation about your relationships and what does your faith and what does your desire or what does your doubt mean for your relationships. So I hope to provoke us a little bit. And one of the things that I would say, and this would be a first point on this, is that I think many, many Christians, people who are part of Christian communities, spend way too much energy trying to decide what is inside and what is outside. And way too much energy proclaiming certain things as sacred and other things as profane. Uh, they imagine Christian community with a really hard line between the culture that surrounds them. Uh, let me give you an example. We're going to talk about two women tonight. The first is came in my life, and this is one of those moments that could have been profane, but really turned out to be sacred. This is the Condor family Goldilocks story. So this is about um, maybe five months ago. Uh, and to let you know, we live in the city of Durham, uh, but we live in a part of Durham that's way in the southwest, so we live about three miles from UNC's campus, uh, city of Durham, but much closer to UNC than, um, than to Duke. So we were up one uh, Sunday morning, and we're sitting around, and we have a little sunroom. We're having some coffee, my wife and I. My son's an early riser. He's a, a sophomore in high school, so he's hanging out with us. And at one point, he goes upstairs, and he comes back downstairs, and he says, Mom, Dad, there's a girl upstairs. And we're like, really? He said, yeah, there's a girl upstairs. And we're like, no, 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 no. Where? And he said, in the, in the guest bedroom. No, 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 your sister was in that room last night. She was watching a movie on the computer, and she probably just fell asleep. He goes, no, no, actually, I, I checked her room. She's in her room. And we're like, no, 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 no. So we start up the stairs, and the first thing we notice is that there's a strange purse on our, uh, on our, our stairs. And so I'm like, okay. I don't think the 49-year-old guy is going to wake up the girl, so to speak. So I send my wife up, and I go back downstairs, and she comes back downstairs really quick. She says, yep, there's a girl up there. And, and so we're like, what, what, what do you do? And, and, and so we actually started calling some people. I mean, what do you do when you have a stranger in your house? You know, and, and we had friends who said, call the cops now. And, and for some reason, that did not feel right. And so we started making a lot of noise, just kind of clattering stuff and pouring coffee and doing the dishes and all these things, you know, hoping that this person would wake up while we're also rifling through her purse, trying to figure out who, who this is. Ironically, it wasn't even her purse, but there was a purse for another said woman in, in our, uh, and so anyway, finally, we hear this girl upstairs going, Nikki, 
Nikki, and she's wandering through the bedrooms up there, and I said, all right, my wife's name is Mimi. I was like, go do your thing here. So she goes upstairs, and I could hear her saying, you're not where you think you are. And, and she's going, oh, my God, oh, my. And she's like just, I mean, in terror. And she starts going, do you have children? Do you have children? And we're like, it's, it's okay, it's okay. They're in high school, middle school. They've seen far worse around this house. She's like, oh, my God. And then she comes downstairs, and there's this, um, we find out later, 23-year-old, uh, blonde in a party dress, I mean, off the shoulders, above the knees, and she is bleeding all from her elbows and her knees. I mean, she's bloody. It's just right down her legs. And later that night, as we went up there, there was a blood trail going up our, our, up our stairs. And, 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 you know, obviously she'd had a really, really tough night. And so we, we kind of sat her down and we said, look, it, it's okay. Um, it, it's quite all right. Um, where do you think you are? And she says, North Raleigh. And we're like, no, <laughs> North Raleigh is about 25 miles from here. And, and so she starts kind of unpacking the night. And she thought she was a friend's house. She was obviously really drunk. Um, you, know, I, you know, it was very clear that her elbows and knees were scraped just from getting out of the cab in front of our house. And, and somehow our, our front door had been left open. And literally, I have neighbors. We've had some crime in our neighborhood who kind of leave a loaded gun kind of waiting by things. And so we were kind of thankful that she came into our house. And, and, and she was, when it started to hit her, that she's in Chapel Hill, she was here for a, a master's graduation of a friend, and she knows only one person, and that person wasn't there. And she also said, you know, I got a really, she's unpacked, I got a really nasty text at about four in the morning from some guy. And, and we, you know, we, as we talked to friends, and, and several young women had said to me, the way she described her evening, probably somebody popped something in her drink at about midnight or one in the morning because she had no, she could, she could remember the top of the hill at about 1130 at night. So she was pretty blacked out uh, from, and I heard her come in at about three in the morning. And so um, we drove her and helped her find her car. We kind of drove around Chapel Hill and some apartments and we did some thinking and we found an apartment complex where her car was parked. And as we kind of got her out of the car, when it dawned on her, the situation she was in, she just wept and she cried. And you could just, the kind of sobs that kind of come low and go all the way up. And, you know, you've probably cried like that once or twice. I mean, it was an incredible moment. And for us, what we realized is we helped her a little bit and we helped her in that situation. We tried not to embarrass her. But in reality, there was something provocational that happened in our lives. We were aware that our first instinct was actually safety. And our first instinct was, what do you do about this situation? Right? And heaven forbid that it was a man, uh, but our, our instinct was really, really about ourselves first. And then here's this girl who's had a terrible night, and all of a sudden we're drawn into an entirely different story uh, with her. And so sometimes things that are pretty profane, like getting so drunk or, or maybe being preyed upon by somebody, can land in a fairly sacred place. And so we'll, we'll, we'll think about our Goldilocks as we kind of proceed with this story. But you heard it read. We're going to switch from Goldilocks to Rahab the prostitute in Jericho. Uh, another woman in a fairly profane situation that in many ways turns out to be something sacred. Um, let me tell you this story three ways. The first telling of this story is just the historical story. Uh, what happened here? 
because um, it was an event that happened. And this was a huge moment in the life of Israel because Moses has died. Their leader has died. And they're getting ready to come into this land that's been promised to them. And that doesn't make sense to us. But land for them was life. For a nomadic people, land meant life. It meant children. It meant grandkids. It meant longevity. Without land, it meant death for them. So taking the land for them was absolutely central. And if you've taken some studies in terms of ancient kind of Near Eastern studies, one of the things you'll realize is that all war for people of that era was a kind of a holy war. When they went to war, they imagined it as a warfare between the gods. It was our God versus your God. It was a clash of the representing powers. So when you came in and got into a situation of warfare, it was also a profound religious moment because then you found out who your God was and what was the, the might or lack of might that your God had. So this is the thing that's happening for them. And there's Joshua, who's now being lifted up as the new leader of Israel, like Moses. And he was a former spy himself. So what does he do? He sends out spies to kind of spy the land. They meet a prostitute who literally helps them, tells them that Jericho is ready to fall, and literally just for the protection of her family, she gives them what they need, she helps them out of the city, and, and that's how the story ends. And, and if you read on pretty dramatically, the city falls to the hand of Israel. Okay, that's the first story. That's the historical events as they happen. But let me now let's take this story as a campfire story. Because most of you know, this story was told for years and years and years before it was written down. It was probably written down about a thousand years later, but it had been told as a campfire story. This was a story that the Israelites told to kind of understand who they were. Now, it's interesting, if you were to read this in the way it was read, I, I didn't notice the version, but this is a point where the Bible translators, I mean the English people, get a little nervous with the Bible. Here's how it reads in, in Hebrew. The men come into the city, and they bedded down in the house of Rahab the harlot. And bedded down, let's get that term really quick. That's a biblical euphemism for hmm, sex. It, it's, 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 it's a term that, that um, and if you were to look this up, I, I, I won't read this to you. We don't have time. But in, in um, a few extra texts, like in Leviticus 22, 25, Deuteronomy, these are all chapters where that term is used nine to ten times in regulations about sexuality, sexual intercourse, who not to have it with. It's a euphemism for sex. Now, the Bible cleans it up. I, I kind of laugh at the versions I like, like the TNIV and the uh, RSV say that they lodged for the evening. It sounds like they're at a Motel 6. You know, they've left the light on for them. We're lodging here with Rahab. But, but the, the, the biblical language uses this euphemism for sex that they bedded down for the evening. And if you can imagine this, this is a story that, that was told around the campfire. And imagine that dad or the clan leader is telling this story, and they're in this group of like 14-year-old guys that are going, oh man, this is unbelievable. Soldiers and a prostitute. And dad, you don't even let us have HBO in our house, and there you are using this word that, that we would get punished if we used in the house. It's a very strong euphemism. And, and so they bed down, but, but where is this, where's this prostitute? It's kind of the humorous part of the story is you're bedding down in the prostitute's house, but she's not there. And in some ways, what's really funny is the king has this incredible KGB that is so sharp that they know that spies have come into the city. And so he goes to Rahab and says, there are spies in your house. 
But then Rahab says, oh, no, 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 they were here, but they've gone. And, and it's humorous in the sense that uh, the king is so smart, but then all of a sudden the, the prostitute says, oh, they went running over there in a big hurry. And all the king's men and all the king's services go running for days looking for the spies. And at no point does somebody say, you know, that woman had some motives to tell us a falsehood. <laughs> and so they run off for, for days and they don't find them. And then the text gets back to the same language and it says the men are bedded down again. And here comes the prostitute back. And so the boys are hearing the story and they're going, oh, they're now they're really bedded down. What's dad going to say? And, and they expect, what do they get from the prostitute? She tells them a confession of unbelievable faith. She says, your God is not a local God not a strong God. Yahweh is the God of heaven and earth. Remember that warfare was a clash of gods. Uh, it would have been very natural to say, I know you've got a tough God, but our God's pretty tough too. But she makes this incredible confession of faith that Yahweh is the sovereign of the universe. Quite surprising. And, and, and in this confession, they make a deal that the, the soldiers are like, okay, We'll help you out. And she tells them, the city's ready to fall, and I will help you hide from the king's men. And so they say, okay, we'll take it on ourselves to protect you. It'll be our responsibility. But then as she's lowering them down the rope, uh, and read this again when you get home, she's lowering them down the rope. Here they are on the rope, and they look up, and now they've got what they want, right? I mean, when you're down on the rope, you're, just, you're, you're safe, right? They change the deal, and they say, wait a minute. It won't be our responsibility to watch out for your family. It'll be your responsibility to watch out for your family. So you get this special cord, tie it on your house, get them all in your house, because this city's going down. Anybody who's not in your house is going to die. So the soldiers kind of get the last laugh of the spies, and then they run off, and she tells them exactly where to go. She says, the king's men will be over here. They'll camp for a couple days. Again, more humor. How does the prostitute know what the king's men are going to do? Is she that in deep with the the council of the of the king now in the campfire story here's how the israelites heard this story this was a story of identity it was a story of we are something the story was used and written down when they were in exile their nation had been destroyed their national identity had been ripped right out from under them and they began telling stories oh yes we really are the people of god we really are and so in some ways this is an ethnic story the prostitute of Jericho is smarter than the king and the soldiers of Jericho, but the soldiers of Israel are even smarter than the prostitute who's smarter than the king. So this really was an ethnic story, a story where Israelites would take pride. Like, for example, I'll give you an example. Has anybody studied the Civil War? There was an urban legend of the Civil War, and as a Southerner I'll say this, but it was, they used to say any Johnny Reb could lick 10 Yankees. Now, that's crazy. Not any one guy can kill another 10 guys, but that's what they used to tell each other as they went into battle because they were always outnumbered. This is a story that Israel told themselves, even in exile, that we are indeed still the people of God. So we've got the historical story, and we've got to some degree the campfire story that was told in, in, in Israel. But there's one more story. And it's the scripture story. And because the story doesn't end with Rahab and the fall of Jericho. The New Testament occasionally quotes the Old Testament, that some of you are familiar with that. 
But interestingly, this single little story kind of buried in Joshua is quoted three times in the New Testament. And I'm talking about peripheral comments in the New Testament. It's in Hebrews 11, kind of the hall of fame of faithful people. And we're told that of the people who are the most faithful, one of them is Rahab. And then in James chapter 2, in a chapter about what does it mean to have active, embodied, courageous faith, we're told one of the best examples of that is Rahab, the prostitute of Jericho. Huh. And then if you were to look into Matthew 1, the genealogy of Jesus has all men and three women. Anybody know who the three women are? Bathsheba, the woman who had an affair King of David, King David, probably not by her choice, but nonetheless. Ruth, who is a foreigner, she is a Moabite who has left her husband and gone to another land, and so she's got this dubious past. And Rahab, the prostitute, and again, I'm not making fun of prostitution. There's practically no one in the ancient world who was a prostitute by choice, but nonetheless, it was a besmirched profession. So interestingly, in the story of Jesus, there are three women all of dubious reputation, who are marked as part of the lineage of Jesus. So in the Scripture story, we are being told some things that we might not really catch. One is that there's this old story in the New Testament that happens again and again and again. It goes like this. The people who should know Jesus don't. The disciples are not. But all of a sudden he tells a parable, no one gets it right. And then this Syrophoenician woman says, I understand it. And Jesus says, you do. Jesus is dying and no one understands what's going on. And a Roman soldier, a hated centurion, comes up and says, this is the Son of God. Story after story after story in the New Testament, we see the spirit of Rahab playing out again and again and again. Someone who should not have faith, someone who should not understand who Jesus is, understands who Jesus is. It's that same story again and again. So in the Scripture story, there's several lessons that the New Testament has grabbed from Rahab. One is the story of unbelievable forgiveness. We're told in this story that forgiveness always waits with God. There's nothing that you can do. Now, I've lived in a college town for 20 years, and I have cried with, held, listened to stories of college abortions, uh, alcohol abuse, incredible conflict with families, um, anything that you can imagine. And always the question is, surely God could not forgive me for this. Rahab is a marker of the magnitude of God's forgiveness. It's also a story about courage. In fact, spiritual formation or discipleship in the New Testament is often a form of alertness. People who notice something and act courageously on what they notice. Rahab is not in a prayer meeting when the spies arrive. They didn't call ahead and say, we're on our way. But when they came, she noticed that these men represented, no matter who they were and what they were, the living God, the sovereign over all the earth. And she had the courage, even to the point of traitorousness, to literally act on that courage. Um, the other part of this story is it's a story of inclusion. In the most nationalistic book of the Old Testament, Joshua, 
the Israelites taking the land from other people, there are constantly stories of people who shouldn't be part of the people of God, but somehow, some way, they force themselves into God's grace and mercy. And again, I said earlier that we are prone at times when we think about the world out there, we think of this as the safe place, the world out there as the profane place. It's dangerous, safe here. Um, we think of When we think of our friends who are not part of the community of faith, at times we have concerns about what does it mean to spend time with them. The story of Rahab, I think, challenges us to think, you know, we might be asking the wrong questions. People who are, and I know a lot of you are in this category, who are followers of God often think like this. How much witnessing should I do? What should I do to encourage people to have faith? How much time, even though this is where I want to be, how much time should I spend out there? Because if I have to be out there, what's the limit of that? That's the question that we often ask. Rather than this, how will I be utterly challenged? How will I be utterly changed? How will I hear the voice of God in places where I do not expect to hear the voice of God. Because ironically, Rahab's confession is the most pure confession of faith in the Old Testament. She truly gets it. So we're asking, what can we do for people? And many times when we're thinking about our relationships, we need to be thinking, how can we hear the voice of God? How can we be challenged? How can we be transformed by that? Now, if you're someone and this is a delight. I have a church with lots of people like this. If you're somebody who hasn't really bought into um, Christian community, uh, you like it, it seems great, but you're not sure what you believe, you're not sure where you're going, many a times I think you will ask the wrong questions too. One question you might ask is, will I be rejected? What if I raise my hand and say, I don't buy that? Will they dislike me? Um, do I have a place in this community? And what the story of Rahab reminds us is that you absolutely have voice. You should express your concern, your doubt, your questions, your concerns. You should put yourself in a position of being vulnerable enough to say that it matters because I think it. It matters because it's my question. Or it matters because it's my pain. And that goes for people who are ardent followers of Christ but experiencing great pain. We are being told that those words, those challenges, and those perspectives are the thing that draws us to true faith. One of the greatest challenges I think we face in particularly young adulthood is that most people your age have not had enough, this is not true for some of you, most, generalization, have not had enough overwhelming life. Your theology has not been challenged by the fact that you've been married and you've had your first child and, and that child is autistic. Um, you've probably not lost your parents or your grandparents. And one of the things that I say about theology is for theology to be good theology, it needs to work in the ICU. It needs to work in the hospital. It needs to work at the graveside. It needs to work in those places. And one of our problems is that we're not asking. We're not getting near. We're not coming close enough to the people who have those experiences, those questions, that pain, and those fears. But when we do, they become Rahabs to us. They show us what God is doing in a way that sometimes we don't know ourselves. 
when I was your age, I was 19 years old, I came to college fired up to pursue faith, and my mom died of cancer early in my sophomore year. And that overwhelmed my faith. Because in my tradition, if you had enough faith, God would act. If you had faith, God would heal. We didn't have a language for dealing with death and loss. And my friends really, really struggled with that. They loved me. They'd hug me. They'd walk with me. But it was very hard for them to ask questions like, hey, what's it like not having a mom? And, and ironically, so many people outside the umbrella of faith asked those questions that in some ways transformed me to be able to come back into the community of faith Sad, wounded, a little angry, but looking for and yearning for the presence of Christ. So again, I challenge us, and again, this is a, a provocation. I want to encourage you that in your relationships, on the outside, so to speak, you may hear the voice of God in ways that you can never imagine. This is an overstatement, but it's partly true. Some of the times we spend so much energy evangelizing or wanting to evangelize or feeling guilty about evangelizing the world around us that we forget that in many ways we are about to be evangelized by them. Now I understand we all have concerns about losing our faith somewhere out there, but you know what? Faith is a dangerous thing. So in the umbrella of this fellowship and this great university, be encouraged. Listen to the stories of your friends, but be courageous. And in some ways, I would love for you to be able to say, you know what, I have found the Rahabs in my life, someone who has spoken the truth of God that I would never expect to hear it from their voice. And I say this, if you have questions on this or you want to dialogue with me, again, I, you know, this is a generalization, feel free to grab me tonight. I'll be glad to give you my email and we can talk and go back and forth or get a cup of coffee here in Durham or whatever. But again, understand that so many times the voice of God is in places that we would never expect. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this group of friends. It's always a privilege to be in this community and uh, it's, it's fun to tell stories of my own failure. I, I think that story I told of the girl in our house, and I, I think with how humorous it was that as a, a pastor and somebody who's older, my first thought was protection rather than the wounds of that woman. And, and, and in many ways, what she taught me by being in that vulnerable situation. God, make us vulnerable. Make us weak. Put us in places where courage is required. Put us in places where we need to be deeply alert your grace and mercy. Amen.